Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus 20, 1 through 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Well, in the book of Exodus, we read about two great liberating works of God. Not one thing, but two things God does to set his people free. God is a liberating God. God sets us free. And in the first 16 or so chapters of the book of Exodus, we read about the fact that when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt... God intervened. He heard their groaning. He heard their prayers. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God called Moses and sent Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And then God intervened with the plagues and with the miracle at the Red Sea and set the people free from external slavery. He set them free from oppression. But as we've been discovering for the last few chapters... And as is self-evident, if we look around in the world today, being socially or politically liberated doesn't really free you up to live as truly free human beings, does it? Because you can have all the civil or political freedom in the world, which are good gifts of God, but, but still be bound by sin, Satan, and death. And in the subsequent chapters, God has been continuing to... Do the internal spiritual work of liberation, namely teaching his people to live not according to sin, but according to faith in him. He's been doing that by providing for their needs, feeding them manna from heaven, giving them water from the rock, graciously instructing him when they rebel against him. And now, as Moses has ascended on Mount Sinai to receive what we call the Ten Commandments, what we're really hearing here is God's instructions about how to live free, how to live as God's free people. So that's my title for our sermon today. Everybody say how to live free. And as we think about this theme, we can make a connection to 
Jesus. This text, the experience of grace that God's people were experiencing in the Old Covenant, is pointing us forward to an even greater work of grace that we have experienced in Christ. Jesus came to make us free, didn't he? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And one of the great texts about freedom comes in John chapter 8. So to set the tone spiritually for what we're looking at in Exodus, I want to invite you to flip in your Bible to John chapter 8 or pull out your phone and go to John chapter 8. If you don't have either one of those, you can feel free just to listen. Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that by faith in his name we can be forgiven of our sins and brought into a relationship of love, a family relationship, a covenant relationship with God. He died on the cross so that by grace, through faith in him, we can be set free from sin, Satan and death. But as we trust in Christ, we've still got to learn how to live out our new identity as God's free people. And in John 8, Jesus talks about this reality. Look with me starting in verse 31. See what Jesus says. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So the mark of discipleship here is abiding in the word of Christ, the word of God. So the word is going to be important. Everybody say the word. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Then look what he goes on to say in verse 32. And you will know the truth. If you abide in my word, then you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you. Here it is. The truth will set you free. Now, some of the religious leaders who are listening to Jesus took issue with this. They said to him in verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Their objection is not just about civil or political freedom. They're saying, hey, as Jewish people who worship the true God and descendants of Abraham, we're all always free. What are you talking about? But Jesus knew that in their hearts they were still slaves to sin. Which is why they didn't recognize him or trust in him. And so Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus came to break that chain. Second ago, we sung, there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. And if there's people in here who are dealing with sin, that you feel like you can't break certain habits. That could be a substance addiction. That could be generational patterns of family brokenness and problems. That could just be issues in your personal relational life that you keep going back to over and over and you feel discouraged. Here's what I want to say to you. The good news of the gospel isn't just that Jesus forgives your sin so you can have a relationship with God and go to heaven. That's great news. But also, you don't have to live in that pattern anymore. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, that's Jesus, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Israel had already been set free, but they had to learn how to live as God's free people. The commandments are not given so that they can earn God's love. He already loved them by sheer grace and invited them into covenant relationship. But now they've got to learn how to live as sons and daughters of the king. They've got to learn how to live free. I'll say a bit more about this in a moment, but traditionally the Christian church has read the Ten Commandments as one of the most helpful expositions of What does it mean to respond to God's love by loving God 
and loving our neighbors. In other words, if we want to grow in the wisdom for how to live free, the Ten Commandments are a guide for us. So with that in mind, we're going to talk today about how to live free. Now, before we proceed further, I want to invite you to bow your head one more time. And I want to invite you to pray two things silently where you are before I say a prayer, another prayer for us. I want to just invite you, first of all, just to thank Jesus for being the Savior who sets us free. And then I want you to ask for his help, because the reality is in Christ we are free, but so often we get ourselves back into habits as if we weren't. Habits of sin and foolishness. And just ask God, Lord, would you send the Spirit to awaken my heart to your word in a fresh way this morning so I can live out my identity as a free child of God? Lord, in the stillness of this moment, we praise you. We thank you for being the God who sets us free, though we were bound in sin, and though we rebelled against you. You loved us and sent Jesus. Lord, I pray right now and today, if there's anybody here who has not trusted in Christ, that today they would trust in Jesus, come to experience that freedom. And for all of us who have trusted in him, Lord, would you help us to grow in faith and hope and love and in wisdom so that we would not walk according to the pattern of our former slavery, but we would walk in the reality of our identity as the free children of God. Forgive our sins, fill us with your spirit and instruct us by your grace this morning. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's look closely at at our text from Exodus 20. How does God set his people free? And what does he teach us about how to live as his free people? Well, the first thing I want you to know is let's not take for granted the fact that God speaks. We serve a God who speaks to his people. Verse one, and God spoke all these words. He's talking to Moses on the mountain, speaking to Moses. But now Moses is going to go report God's words to the people. We should never uh, get used to the fact that when we open up our Bibles, the creator of the universe The living God of all wisdom and love speaks to us. These are the very words of God. And the words of God disclose the heart of God. They teach us the way of salvation. And as Jesus said, they show us the truth that would make us free. So God speaks. That's the first great news. If we want to learn how to live as God's free people. Everybody say God speaks. And then I want to look at verse 2 and think about verse 2 for several minutes here before we move on into the actual commandments, because it's so important that verse two goes before verse three in this text. Look at the first thing God says. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, before God starts giving words of instruction or command about how to live, God here proclaims the story of his saving grace. He proclaims the story of his saving grace. He reminds his people that we're in a relationship. And I initiated this relationship out of love and mercy for you. You were slaves in Egypt. And I came and rescued you. And it's become clear throughout the narrative of Exodus. Not only were they political and economic and social slaves, but they they were spiritually immature and they grumbled against God and their faith was small and they were characterized by much sin. 
And yet God in his patience and mercy reached out and saved them by grace. The story of saving grace precedes the commandment. Now, as Christians, we've got to think about this very carefully. Because the last thing we want to do as we read the commandments of God is get trapped in a false legalistic understanding of God's commandments. What we're not saying today and for the next few weeks as we study the the laws and the commandments of God in the book of Exodus. What we're not saying is obey God's commandments, be a very good person, then God will love you and maybe let you into heaven if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. We are not saying that. If we're trying to get right with God based on our performance, our obedience to his commandments, that's a losing battle. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's commandments. What's happening here is that a God who by mercy and grace has initiated a relationship with his people is saying, I love you. Now I'm calling you to live responding to my love by faithfully loving me in return. And I'm going to mercifully teach you how to do that. So the gospel goes before the commandment. Second thing I want you to note about verse two is that this is what Martin Buber called an I thou relationship. Now, I got to explain that for a second. Uh, Martin Buber was a Jewish philosopher, 20th century Austrian Jewish philosopher. And he wrote a most famous book called I and Thou. And the, the book was complicated and brilliant. It says a lot of interesting things. But let me uh, oversimplify it for you for a moment in order to make a point, because he was deeply influenced as a person of Jewish background by this verse. He says, basically, there's two ways of relating to the world, relating to the universe, an I-it relationship or an I-thou relationship. An I-it relationship is where we treat other people basically as objects to fit into our story of life, that we use or manipulate according to our purposes or that we objectify to, to study and try and figure them out, as opposed to relating to them as persons who are cr- confronting us in a relational way. Now, At times, sadly, all of us probably relate to other human beings with this kind of I-it relationship, don't we? When we treat each other wrongly, when we use and abuse one another, when we uh, treat people maybe in our work or in our family as if they are there to serve our purposes, then we get really frustrated at them when they don't fit into our little vision of how reality ought to be. That's an I-it relationship. An I-thou relationship or I-you relationship is recognizing the personhood of other persons. And if we want to learn how to relate to each other like that, first of all, we have to learn how to relate to God like that. Now, look at this text of Scripture. I want you to see something. The God of the Bible is not some impersonal creative force. The God of the Bible is a God of relationship. And look what he says. I, you might circle that word. I am the Lord your God. So everybody say I. I am the Lord your God who brought you. Everybody circle that word. Everybody say you. This is an I you relationship. I, I thou. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So we have a God who is our king. He's our savior. He's our father. He's our friend. He's interested in personal relationship with you. He initiated this relationship by his mercy and love. And now he's calling us to respond by faith. That's what's happening here. When he says the Lord, your God. Not only is he saying, I want a relationship with you, but he's reminding them that they're in a covenant relationship. Covenant has been one of our key words in the book of Exodus, so why not? Let's say it again. Everybody say covenant. A covenant relationship. God has bound himself to his people and bound his people to himself in a covenant of love. 
that he initiated. And now, in what follows, as he, he starts to give commands, he's teaching about how we can live in a healthy relationship with God. Teaching us how to live free. So we can connect the dots between this and John chapter 8. When Jesus said in John chapter 8, If you abide in my words, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He was not saying to his disciples, if you'll obey everything I command you to do, then you'll be forgiven of your sins and you'll get into God's family. No, the only way that they could be forgiven of their sins and get into God's family and become his free children was by grace. That's why he was about to go on the cross to the cross and die for their sins. But he's teaching as his free people. Now they've got to learn to live out that freedom, which means believing his promises, obeying his commands. It's a lifestyle of freedom. Let me say a few words of introduction about the Ten Commandments and about what follows. Okay, so point one about the Ten Commandments. This is a brilliant exegetical insight. There's ten of them. Okay, there's ten of them. And traditionally, Christians have and Jews also have split those Ten Commandments into two groups called the first tablet of the law and the second tablet of the law. The first tablet is the first four commandments. Second tablet is the last six commandments. See how that works. And Christians when they're teaching about what does it mean to follow God, have frequently made a connection between those two tablets of the law and what Jesus says about the great commandment in Matthew chapter 22 and elsewhere. Remember, they asked Jesus, some scribes come and ask Jesus, what's the great commandment? And he he quotes Deuteronomy 6 and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. That's the first and great commandment. So love God. That's the first commandment, says Jesus. And then he says a second commandment is like it. And he quotes Leviticus 19:18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love people, love God and love people. That's how God wants us to live. We live that way as a response to God's love. That's first John 4:19. We love because he first loved us. So the spiritual dynamics of the Christian faith are this. We have sinned against God. We rebelled against him, but he never stopped loving us. He reaches out to us by grace and mercy and offers us forgiveness and salvation. When we trust in Christ, he brings us into his family. And the more we understand of his love for us, the more we start to love God in return. And then that love for God gets expressed as we learn to love people in God. And you see that whole structure here in the Ten Commandments. First, in verse two, God loves us. And now the first four commandments, the first tablet of the law, are elaborating for us. How do we love God? The first four commandments are all about our relationship with God. And then there's a shift in focus. And the next six commandments are about our relationship to other people. They teach us how to love our neighbor. How to love God, how to love people in God. That's what we're learning here. Now, before we dive into talking for a few minutes about the specific commandments in this first tablet of the law, Let me give you a few thoughts. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot these down because it will help you as you read through the rest of Exodus and indeed as you read through much of Scripture to think a little bit about as Christians, what do we do when we read commandments? And in particular, what do we do when we read the Old Testament law, what's called the law of Moses? Well, there's a lot that could be said about, but let me give a few simple rules of thumb for you. First of all, there's a lot of spiritual benefits that can come to us through reflecting on these commandments of God. And I'll just name two of them. Um, First of all, as we reflect on these commandments, they're like a mirror that continues to reveal to us our own sin. I mean, everybody, anybody ever pick up your Bible wanting to have a nice, warm, fuzzy devotional thought and instead you walk away feeling convicted like a big sinner when you thought you were doing great? 
That's not very pleasant, but it's very healthy if we don't want to live in a spiritual fantasy, but want to have a real relationship with the real God. Because when the mirror is showing us our sin, what it's doing is not saying God hates you because you're very bad. What it's doing is saying there's still stuff inside of you that is hindering the fullness of your intimacy with God. And it drives us back to the cross where we recognize our need for God's grace. So we say, God, forgive me for falling short of your glory. Forgive me for breaking your commandments. And please remove anything in me that would hinder that relationship. So the law, the commandments of God, expose our sin and our need for grace in a way that drives us back to Jesus and his cross. But secondly, now that we have this relationship with Jesus based on grace and our hearts are longing to love God, these commandments can teach us wisdom so that we know how to love God. I mean, one thing that should be self-evident as we look around in our culture is that people are very confused about what love means, right? I mean, just turn on the radio and everybody's singing about love all the time. And you just start thinking, what was that line from The Princess Bride? You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Right? Love is something you fall into, you fall out of. It's a very passionate feeling. It leads you to do all sorts of mean and self-destructive things based on the top 40 whatever songs on the radio right now. Love seems to mean I'm drawn to you a whole lot right now sometimes. Or if I want you to love me, it might mean I want you to unconditionally affirm me and everything I do no matter what. We're very confused about love. The meaning of love is not necessarily self-evident. Now, if we want to know as Christians, what does God even mean by love? First and foremost, we look at Jesus Christ and whom we see the love of God incarnate. And then Jesus teaches us to read the whole Bible as God unfolds his heart and character and teaches us the meaning of his love. So as we trust in Christ and depend on his grace, now we want to learn to develop the wisdom to actually live a loving lifestyle. The law can help us with that. Final point before we dive into A few brief comments about these first commandments. Traditionally, Christians have divided the Mosaic law into three categories. This tradition is certainly an oversimplification, and yet, like many oversimplifications, it's pretty helpful as a starting place. Which is to say, um, the three ways that Christians Christians have traditionally, from very early times, talked about the law of Moses is the ceremonial law, and then the civil or juridical law. And then the moral law. So let me quickly explain what those mean. The ceremonial law is stuff like food laws, kosher laws, right? Or stuff like certain holidays, stuff like the sacrificial system that we read about in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And what Christians have traditionally said, because the New Testament teaches it, is that those laws were fulfilled in Christ. As a matter of fact, Their main function was to disclose God's character and grace in a way that pointed people forward to Jesus. But now that Jesus is here, he has declared all foods clean. And Paul says in many places, it's fine to celebrate those festivals, but we're not bound by them. We shouldn't keep making those animal sacrifices because Jesus has been the once for all sacrifice. So those ceremonial laws were signposts pointing forward to Jesus. The second category of law, the civil law or the juridical law, was governing the people of Israel as a community during the theocracy period with Moses and then through the later period of the kings and so on throughout the history of the Old Testament. And those teachings can reveal to us some very important things about the nature of God's justice and mercy that can continue to inform the way that we think about how to live in the world today. But ultimately, we're not in that um, era of history anymore, in that theocracy. So the ceremonial laws... um, 
do not apply to us directly in the same way. So just to give one example, in Leviticus 19, there's a law to build a parapet, which means a railing around the roof of your house. Now, I don't think you're breaking God's law if you don't have a railing around the roof of your house. That was a civil law. Now, there is a principle there, which at, during a time period when, in which people hung out on the roof of their house, it was a way to honor the dignity of human life to build that thing. We could still take that moral principle and find ways to apply it in our life by doing things like not texting and driving or other ways that we do something that inconveniences ourselves out of respect for the lives of others. But ultimately, what Christians have said is the civil law, while it might teach us, it does teach us some things about the character of God, we're not under that law in a direct way anymore. But thirdly, we have the moral law. And the moral law is revealing us things about the unchanging character of God, which is why Jesus and Paul and other New Testament writers quote it all the time. It's when they're teaching us how to live as the people of Christ. So the Ten Commandments has been read as the summary of the moral law teaching us about how to walk with God in a way that illuminates how we live our lives as God's people today. Okay, got all that and went really fast. If not, that's why Jesus gave us a podcast. So you can go back and listen to it again and take notes. All right, now let's take a few minutes before we get done to get into the meat, the heart of what is God saying in the first tablet of the law? What is he saying? And I would say this, the first tablet of the law is really summarized in verse 3. And everything else, which we're barely going to have time to touch on today, is uh, teaching us how to apply verse 3. Verse 3 says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. There is one God. Worship the one God. Let me be the center of everything for you. Now, Martin Luther wrote a, a book called On Good Works, which is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's actually a good one if you want to read a book by Luther. The Freedom of the Christian and On Good Works is the two I recommend to start with. But in this, he spends most of his time talking about this first commandment. And he defines the meaning of this first commandment in a way that is true and right and helpful, I think. And he says this, your God is whatever you trust, whatever you hope in, and whatever you love above all else. So he connects it to faith, hope, and love. What are you trusting? What are you depending on in your life? What gives your life meaning and value? That's faith. What are you hoping in? What's your, the basis for your hopes for the future? That's hope. What do you value? What do you treasure? What are you loyal to above all else? That's love. And he says, your God is whatever you put your ultimate trust, hope, and love in. Which is why I think as New Testament Christians who maybe don't have a temptation to bow down or to pray to statues, we still really need to hear all the Old Testament warnings about idolatry. Because we may not pray to a statue, but if I'm really ultimately setting my hope in career success rather than God, I've got an idolatry problem. If I'm really relying on some sort of relationship or some sort of sexual gratification or some sort of substance to get me through the day, then I've got an idolatry problem. If I'm really uh, devoting myself and my time and my energy and my heart and my passion and my gifts towards whatever, self-promotion or anything other than God, I've got an idolatry problem. So basically, this is a call to radical God-centeredness. God has given us many good gifts. We should enjoy those gifts with thanksgiving. But if we try and enjoy the gifts in a way that alienates them from God, any one of those good things can become an idol. Rather, when we put God first, 
and make him the center of everything, then all those gifts fit into their place and bring blessing. But we're going to be willing to let them go. So if God blesses me with financial resources, thanks be to God. I don't feel guilty about that. I want to honor the Lord and share them and enjoy them and bless people with them. But when I make them an idol such that I'm trusting in them and I'm hoping in them, I've got a big problem. And one of the ways that you can find out if it's an idol is what if it all goes away? What if you're bankrupt tomorrow? You still going to have joy in the Lord? Real freedom, you see, is when you trust and hope only and ultimately in that which can never be taken away from you. Namely, God himself. That's the, the heart of the first tablet of the law. A God-centeredness. Treasuring God above all else. The second, third, and fourth commandments are giving us some practical guidance about how do we do that. Let's read the second commandment real quick. Verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, we could easily do a whole sermon on each of those commandments. As I said, we're not going to take the time to do that. But let me give you a few thoughts to guide your meditation as you continue to study this. We're now applying the first principle and one of the the first commandment, rather. And and the application here is don't make graven images of God. I think this has two meanings. One of them is don't make statues that are additional gods. Don't worship God plus some other stuff. Worship only God. I also think the text is saying something else. We're going to get to a story. I think on the sermon schedule, Chauncey's going to preach this one to us. But the famous story of the golden calf. You remember that story? Some of you that grew up in church. And when Aaron makes the golden calf and says, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. He may be saying, here's an additional God. But it seems to be saying, this is Yahweh. The God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The God who brought the plagues. The God who brought you the red sea, through the Red Sea. The God who gave you manna. Here he is. You can look at him. He's this calf. So it's not a another God in so much as it is falsely representing the real God misrepresenting the real God so if I was going to summarize this principle one way to summarize it would be worship God as he has revealed himself to be not as humans imagine him to be I mean back to the fact that our our culture is confused about the meaning of love one of the things that I have found a lot of times with confused young people who are often very sincerely spiritually seeking is that lots of people utter sentences like this. Well, the Bible says God is love, and I believe that. But if God is love, then he wouldn't really want. And then they say something that God said he wanted. They start arguing with Jesus. In other words, there's some ideas about God, some ideas about love, which are sort of based in truth. But there's a whole bunch of human fantasy projected out based on what I imagine God should be or ought to be or what I want him to be. So really, I'm putting myself in the place of God by getting to declare what he is. Christians, followers of Jesus, in our spiritual lives, we want to deal with reality, not fantasy. We want to deal with reality, not fantasy. God reveals himself in Scripture. And we need to put ourselves under the authority of the whole Bible if we're going to be in touch with reality. God reveals himself fundamentally and and most of all in Jesus Christ. 
He is the image of the invisible God, says Colossians 1.15. And all of Scripture is pointing us towards Jesus and revealing his heart and his character. Which means if we want to know the God who is love, we need to know Jesus. And we need to know Jesus as he has revealed himself into in the whole Bible. And that's what this command is all about. God goes on to say here that he's a jealous God. I'll just make a quick comment about this. When we talk about the jealousy of God, we're not talking about God being needy. I mean, in our human relationships, when you run into jealous people, that's usually not a positive quality, right? Because human jealousy, when we use that phrase, we're usually talking about here's a really needy person. Talking about codependency, something that our therapist is trying to help us get over. And that's not what's happening here. Because the Bible teaches that God has no needs. If I was hungry, I wouldn't ask you. I'm not hungry, but if I was, I wouldn't ask you. When God says, I am who I am, in Exodus 3, he's teaching that he is the self-existent, all-sufficient, eternally happy one. We know now in the light of Christ that he is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. The Father has been enjoying the Son and the fellowship of the Trinity from eternity. So he's happy, infinitely. He's satisfied. He's all-powerful. He doesn't need anything. So this isn't about God's neediness. Rather... When God says he's jealous, it's speaking of God is speaking to us of the inexorable nature of his holy love. Here's what it means. God will not be satisfied with anything other than your best, even if you are. If you want to give God 20 percent, God's going to say no. If you want to give God 80 percent, God's going to say no. If you want to give God ninety nine point nine 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 percent, God's going to keep fighting for that other point zero 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 one percent. This is inexorable love, which says, I'm going to keep pursuing you until you do love me with your heart, soul, mind and strength, because that's when you're really free. That's what God deserves. And that's when we're really joyful. He goes on to explain that this uh, inexorable love is manifest in his judgment and mercy, the familial generational effects of sin, but also the familial blessings of faith in God. And just in passing, isn't it nice that he says three to four generations as far as ripple effects of sin, but a thousand generations in terms of God's blessing on faithfulness? God's yes of grace always swallows up his no of judgment. Thanks be to God. All right, I'm going real fast now. The the next commandment, verse seven, is about honoring the name of God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God's name and scripture is tied to his person, his character and his holy presence. God reveals to reveals himself to us with many names in the Bible and Exodus. The big name has been Yahweh. I am who I am. He is who he is. We come to know God first and foremost in the son, Jesus Christ, when baptized into the one name, singular father, son and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. And what we're being taught here is that. If we're going to keep the first commandment to have no other gods before God, we're going to, in other words, we're going to have faith, hope and love in our souls. Then that needs to be lived out and expressed in our words and actions. OK, so we're moving from the internal to the external here. It's one thing to love God within your heart, but it's another thing to live a lifestyle consistently. And really, the two can't be separated. The lifestyle reveals what's in the heart. So when we say don't take the Lord, your, the name of the Lord, your God in vain, I mean, on a basic level, don't use God's name as a cuss word. Right. That's what your mama taught you when you were a kid. Don't use God's name as a cuss word. We can move beyond that and say, don't speak of the Lord ever in a way that is irreverent in any way. But we can move beyond that and say, listen, if you trust in Christ, what do you call? You're called a Christian. You're called a Christian. Right. 
So if you trusted Jesus, you're a Christian. The name of Jesus is up on you, which means if you live a life in the world in which your words and your actions are dishonoring Jesus, you're dishonoring his name. His name is on you. So we're being called here. If God is really first and foremost in your life, then especially with your words here in emphasis, but also with your lifestyle, honor that name. Finally, the fourth commandment here before we wrap up today is about the Sabbath. Let's read verses 8 through 11 real quickly. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sabbath is a sign of freedom for the people of Israel. I mean, here's something that just think about this. Think about what this might have felt like for the people of Israel. What have they been doing their whole life? What have they been doing for generations? Working for who? Pharaoh, they're slaves. If you're a slave to Pharaoh, do you get a day off? You never stop working. And if you stop working, what do you get is a whip. And if you complain about the workload, what you get is a bigger workload. Remember that earlier? Moses said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, more bricks. And now you've got to make your own straw. The crushing burden of work. Some of us in our sort of um, American workaholic way, have maybe perverted a good biblical theology of work in a way that we have sort of become our own pharaoh in our own heads, in which we feel worthless if we ever stop working. The anxiety of being starts bothering us if we ever stop for enough to be silent and to rest. And here's a liberating word. Stop working. Why? Because you don't serve Pharaoh. They, don't, they didn't serve the Pharaoh. You don't serve the Pharaoh in your head. Who do you serve? The living God. And the living God will take care of you if you just pause for a day. If you just stop and rest. Moses roots this commandment in the story of creation. God worked six days and rested. That wasn't because God got tired, friends. God doesn't get tired. God's work in creation is a beautiful expression of God's eternal repose as the unchangingly happy and peaceful one. All creation and all temporal activity are ordered towards God as their proper end, which also means since we are human beings made in the image of God, that all of our activities of work are ordered towards God as their end. And when we stop to rest and worship, we remind ourselves what it was all about. We're not working to try and save the world. We're not working to try and give ourselves a meaningful identity. I mean, sometimes we are, but we're doing it wrong if we're doing that. And when we stop when we stop to rest, to cease from labor, to worship God, to hear his word, to enjoy his gifts and his creation. What we're saying is it's not about me. It's about God. Creation is God's gift and my labor is God's gift. In Hebrews chapter four, we read that the Sabbath points us forward to salvation in Jesus Christ. I don't have time to unpack all that today, but let me just say two ways in which that's true. Go study Hebrews chapter four. That's one of your assignments for this week. But Hebrews chapter 4 teaches us that the Sabbath is pointing us forward to a um, to the reality that in Jesus, 
We can cease from the works of the old covenant. The ceremonial law is abrogated. The civil law is, is abrogated. That means they're, they're fulfilled and done away with. They're, they don't apply to us in the same way. They're still relevant to us to teach us about God. And the moral law isn't how we get saved. It wasn't actually how they got saved in the Old Testament either. But it's not the basis of our covenant relationship with God. And so we can just rest by faith in the saving work of Christ, even as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus in which uh, we enter into God's eternal rest. I think there's going to be creative activity, work in that sense in heaven, but there's going to be no tedium and no exhaustion. Doesn't that sound amazing to you? Woo! As a guy who's been really busy for the last 17 years and has five kids, when I just think about heaven as rest, I get really excited. Anybody else get excited? Thanks be to God. Now, Christians have differed somewhat about how you are supposed to apply the specifics of the Sabbath regulation in the New Covenant. I think we can have some freedom in that. Uh, Most Christians from early times tended to identify Sunday, the first day of the week, with the Old Testament Sabbath and set that day apart as a day of rest, worship and works of mercy. We can already see this starting to happen in the book of Revelation, chapter one, verse 10, um, which, in which we read this. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day seems to be referring to Sunday, the first day of the week, which is now since it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. It was being honored as the Lord's day. In Acts 20, verse seven, we read on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. In other words, at first, the Christian community was meeting on the seventh day of the week as a Sabbath uh, rest uh, in, in the synagogues. And then they switched as the Sabbath and the church became distinct. They started meeting on the first day of the week. So for this reason, Christians have traditionally most often said, let's set aside the first day of the week as a day of rest and and worship and and good works of mercy. And yet there's several things that Jesus and Paul says that may indicate to us a certain uh, amount of freedom and flexibility about this. But here's what I would say. The Sabbath principle at minimum, at minimum, needs to be applied in our life in this way. First of all, we need to rest in the saving work of Jesus and build into our lives a rhythm of work and rest in which we're constantly reminding ourselves that God is the Savior and we are not. That's the first principle. Second principle, I think we can honor this by prioritizing corporate worship. And I would encourage everybody, whatever your convictions are about uh, keeping the Lord's Day, that you make sure you set aside at least 24 hours um, in the week to rest, to cease from all labor. Like you're not going to die. God's going to take care of you. If it stresses you out to take 24 hours without working, you might want to examine that. Why are you anxious? What's bothering you? What if I just said, I'm going to guard it, not out of legalism, but out of faith, just saying, this is a gift. 24 hours, I'm going to worship and rest and enjoy God's creation. And just see if you die. I bet you won't. I bet you won't. And probably you'll grow in a humility and in a dependence upon God's grace that will be very sanctifying and helpful. All right. Well, I'm out of time today, friends. But I want to end by remembering and, and reminding you about the importance of Reading these verses in the light of Jesus Christ, which we said means two things I want to say to you now as we close. First of all, probably as we're reading these, the Holy Spirit is doing some of that convicting work, right? I mean, we could even have public confession. If anybody has ever put anything other than God as first in your life, maybe maybe we could have a show of hands. Listen, all of us have broken this first commandment. All of us have done it. 
And the good news of the gospel is that God loves sinners who has broken his commandment. Jesus died so that we can be right with God and enjoy peace with God, not based on our performance, but based on his grace. That's part one. But part two is saying, but now good news of the gospel is not just that you're forgiven and that you have a hope of being with Christ in a new creation, but you actually don't have to continue living like a slave to sin and folly. You can learn to live with the dignity and the freedom of children of God. And what the text is saying to us today is that if you want to live truly free, you need to learn how to live a God-centered life. If you're trying to add God onto your life as a nice little religious ornament, it won't work. You're always going to be a slave to some pathological sin problem. But if Jesus is the center... And if we're worshiping God, not as we imagine him to be, but as he reveals himself to be. And we're trying to cultivate a lifestyle in which our words and our actions show everybody that God is good and practice that lifestyle in a rhythm of work and rest that expresses our dependence upon God. Now we're learning how to live as free children of God. And if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Why don't you bow your heads with me to pray? Lord, I thank you for this word that you've given us. Thank you for your saving grace. Thank you that you not only offer us forgiveness from sin through Jesus, but the opportunity to live wise, free, loving lives. Pray that you would help us all to repent of sin and put Jesus at the center of everything we do and everything we are. In Christ's name, amen.